After more than a decade producing the Permaculture Podcast, I've watched his books, classes, and articles on the subject become ever more abundant. While this is a good thing, it can be a lot to take in. Even the podcast now has more than 600 episodes to explore. If you're stuck in a rut trying to figure out where to start, or struggling to find the support and information you need, schedule a meandering with me today. In this casual phone call, I'll help you define your strengths, refine your interests, and point you to resources that I think will be the most helpful in making your permaculture desire a reality. Check out the permaculturepodcast.com slash meandering for more information. This episode is a guest interview from my friend Karin Olson, continuing the conversation on right livelihoods. Sitting down with the renegade economist Della Z. Duncan, they discuss what right livelihood can mean and how we can manifest it in the world in this moment. They also share the structural issues which currently exist that we can advocate changing in order to create a future that provides more equitable opportunities for everyone to pursue their own vision of a right livelihood. Throughout, Della and Karin touch on alternative economic models, how many of us use them already in our everyday life, and how to consider implementing the various options, such as the gift economy or time banking, in our lives and communities. Enjoy this conversation with Karin and Della, and I'll join you again after. Yeah, so how I got to be a renegade economist and what that means is I, yeah, I went to UC Davis and actually studied very traditional economics. In fact, my dissertation as an undergraduate was a very statistical analysis of the Human Development Index and Walmart in developing countries. So knowing what I know now, looking back, developing countries, Walmart the human development index is so many challenging things now to look back and see what I was learning and doing. And what touched me more while I was there than the scholastic work I was doing was I directed the vagina monologues, Eve Ensler's play, and had the cast write our own vagina monologues. And through that, it really revealed how many of us had experienced sexual violence. And so that's what then led me to not go into international relations and sociology, which is what I was studying, but follow into sexual violence prevention and intervention. And that work was really powerful and challenging and beautiful in a lot of ways, empowering in a lot of ways. And yet I also found that the work we were doing didn't seem to have a value in the economy that we were embedded in. It was a nonprofit in San Jose, California, and it just felt that we were continuously having to compete for dwindling sources of state and local funding. We had to kind of beg for crumbs off the tables of the tech companies around us for money to do our basic work. And I just didn't understand why the work we were doing seemingly had little to no value in the economy we were embedded in. At that time, while I was there, that I heard the upstream metaphor for the first time. And the metaphor, I believe, comes from public health. And the metaphor is that you're standing at the bank of a river and you see someone float by who's drowning. So you jump in to save them and pull them to shore. But you look up and you see another person floating down the river drowning. So you jump in to pull them to shore. Pretty soon you look up and you just see all these people floating down the river drowning. So you yell for help. And eventually someone or a group of folks needs to go upstream 
to figure out why is everyone falling in in the first place. So I, I heard this metaphor in relation to sexual violence prevention, why not to just support survivors of sexual violence, but to go upstream and try to address the root causes of violence in communities. And I heard that metaphor and just so enjoyed that way of thinking, that journey, that I took it on more so related to the economics. So why was it that the work we were doing had little value? And I really feel that I've been on this journey upstream ever since about our economic system. So I've just, and I'm, I'm still on it, learning, going further and further upstream to the root causes of the economic, political, ecological, social challenges of our time. And it did lead me to Schumacher College, which is named after E.F. Schumacher, who wrote Small is Beautiful, Economics as if People Matter. And he and that school are all about alternative economics. So it was there that I found the work of many regenerative economics people, ecological economics, Buddhist economics, feminist economics, cooperative economics, and more. And so in that interest, I found this phrase, renegade economist. It's actually connected with Kate Rayworth predominantly. And so I said, yes, that feels like my mythopoetic identity or my calling is to really challenge and unpick and unlearn traditional economic thinking and uplift stories and practices of the alternatives. I love that story. And one thing also that really resonates for me is when I was in my master's degree program, I was in a course on the World Bank, right? Because I was also studying international development work. And I remember sitting there and being like, wait a minute, constant economic growth, that doesn't make sense to me. You know, and I was the weirdo, right? Uh, I also wrote my book about, you know, the informal sector, especially in um, what was then called developing countries, right? Now we call them more global majority countries. But, you know, I was always the weirdo. And I think that that, you know, that the power in actually starting to ask why the narrative is what the narrative is, is really what, what's fantastic about embracing that term renegade economist. So let's maybe shift then. One thing that we both, I've been exploring, and I also remember when I read that book, Economics is People and the Planet Mattered. Is that what it is? Small is Beautiful. I don't remember the subtitle. Small is Beautiful, Economics is if People Mattered. But then other folks have kind of reframed people and the planet. There's kind of been updated editions. His daughter even wrote like a, a more updated edition that has the planet in it. But yeah, something like that. So when I read that, I remember, oh, right, livelihoods, this makes sense. And since I've started, you know, more working around livelihoods, I've been really interested in that concept. You've studied it really in depth, but will you share more from your perspective of studying at the Schumacher Institute and just your evolving understanding of what does it mean? Yeah, happy to. To tell that story, I want to go back and say I was in a relationship, a romantic relationship that was giving me a lot of anxiety. And I wanted to be on anti-anxiety medication. This is a, a while back. And fortunately, I went to someone who turned out they were not a psychiatrist and therefore could not prescribe medication, but instead they were a therapist. And fortunately, one of the tools they had that they taught me was mindfulness. And so I was first exposed to mindfulness through this way of being very focused on myself and the kind of calming of my nerves and kind of decreasing my own personal anxiety. 
And that led me to a meditation retreat, a, you know, Vipassana seven day meditation retreat, which again was very self-focused, very much like how can I calm my nerves, my body and be more at ease and at peace. Then the second retreat that I signed up for, totally unbeknownst to me, Joanna Macy was the teacher and I didn't even know who she was. So I remember sitting down in the room with my roommate and she said, isn't Joanna amazing? And I was like, I don't even know who that is. I just signed up for the next retreat available. And Joanna Macy, so eco-justice Buddhist philosopher and activist based in Berkeley, California here. She's in her late eighties, I believe now. And I have heard recently that she's unwell. So mm -hmm. do you want to wish her, wish her well at this time? And she was the teacher of that second retreat I went on. And it was very much this engaged Buddhist perspective. So instead of this focus on self, she was so encouraging of us to take our spirituality off of the cushion into our lives. Mm. And so really to not just focus on our own suffering, but to, you know, be with the suffering of the world, not just try to alleviate our own pain or suffering, but to alleviate the pain and suffering of the world throughout the web of life. And this idea of engaged Buddhism, engaged spirituality, spiritual activism is something that I really learned from her. So that leads to the Eightfold Noble Path. So mindfulness is actually just one component of an ethical way of living in Buddhism. So the Eightfold Noble Path in Buddhism is kind of an a invitation for ethical living. And they're really aspirations, and they're helping us to point in a direction that's helpful. And mindfulness is only one of the eight. And right livelihood is also one of the eight. So that's why in my understanding of right livelihood, it's our spiritual practice in action through our work. So it's work as part of a spiritual path. So it's kind of like our, our way of contributing to the world through our spiritual aspirations. So that's one, one kind of connection or way that I'm seeing right livelihood, but I'm curious about your view as well. Yeah, I think it's really informed for sure by, you know, what I read from E.F. Schumacher's version of, you know, taking that from Buddhism. I think a lot of us feel grief or cognitive dissonance around the fact that we're often in our lives and in our work, we're unintentionally harming the web of life. And I love asking that question. And, and that kind of is the next question I want to ask is like, you know, the whole conversation series I'm posing around what would work in service to life look like capital L I F E. And that's really where I'm going with it now, because I think it can in the American kind of hyper individualistic context, it can look like what's my purpose and I need to feel fulfilled, which of course is true, but it needs to be within these nested holes and their well-being also. That's kind of the direction I'm going with it. So do you want to say more about that or would you like to switch to like that conversation around like what should work be about, especially in these times, the role of works and so, so many of us put so many hours of our day into our work? Well, let me say a little bit about it because I really love the question. And I, I think it goes with your what, what you want to share about spiritualizing our work. Just to share one frame that I've found really helpful is to look at when are spiritual traditions helpful for life or in service in life and when are they not? Because if we're viewing work as part of a spiritual path, 
one question is which spiritual path or what what's the spiritual paradigm beneath that so i am coming from an explicitly eco spiritual view and so there's this frame where it's spirituality is helpful when it's non-dual and when it's collective liberation focused so non-dual means when there's duality meaning there's this world and another like heaven or also in islam there's a, a, like an afterlife or even in in some buddhist spiritual traditions there's this world and the wheel of samsara and, the, and then you exit it and you get to go to enlightenment which is kind of seen as not in this cosmic realm so this cosmic duality is harmful to life on earth because we view that there's this world and then there's another therefore we can treat this world like crap because we're going to escape it, okay? So that cosmic duality is unhelpful for life on Earth. Cosmic unity, meaning it's all connected, right? So this kind of holistic, but also systemic view and cosmic unity instead of, instead of duality, like this is the Earth, let's treat it as sacred as it is, right? Life is sacred. That is helpful. That is a helpful spiritual tradition. And then the other side of it, the other piece that I talked about is when there's individual salvation, and again, this can take place in many spiritual traditions. In Christianity, this is, I do my, my thing so that I can go to heaven. In Buddhism, it's my own enlightenment, right? So there's many ways that it's very individual focused. That's unhelpful because it's very self-focused. But when there's a collective liberation, so in Buddhism, the eco-sattva or the bodhisattva, the frame of keep coming back to the wheel of samsara to help enlighten other beings. So like my happiness is interconnected with your happiness. In Bhutan, they say true abiding happiness cannot exist while others suffer. So it's this very interconnected view. And in Christianity too, that, that would be like a collective liberation, you know, like, like a Christ mind, a, a giving um, connected spirit. And again, this is in many spiritual traditions. So I just offer that really, really good question is that when I'm talking about work as a spiritual path, the type of spirituality that is the shift in consciousness or the paradigm shift is one to an ecological paradigm shared by many indigenous wisdom traditions as well. I want to uplift that as well. So seeing the earth as sacred, seeing the natural world as having inherent value, as being alive, right? And being in relation with, right? All of these, also seeing ourself as part of a living whole, the eco-self. So all of these are just touch points to an ecological, spiritual worldview that I'm talking about when I say work is a spiritual path. Thank you for that. I love that you are connecting it with the spiritual. I've been asking my question of myself, you know, like, what does it look like to spiritualize my work? And I think a lot of folks, as you were saying, when we say spirituality, people think it needs to go into a category. It's this, that, or it's the other thing. And for me, and this is illuminated by the work and study I've been doing with the Carol Sanford communities around the regenerative paradigm, is, you know, I'm realizing for me, that question looks, looks like um, developing my own potential to contribute to the unfolding of the potential of the living systems around me. And then by that, a living systems, I mean, individual human, as well as, you know, uh, communities, as well as our living earth and the life sheds. So instead of saying water sheds, which you know, can make people think about water and water isn't a living thing, but to think about it as a life shed, all of the living beings in there, 
Um, I'm living that term. And so what is my highest contribution that I can make towards this kind of co-evolution of life? That really, for me, is spiritualizing around my work and requires for me to connect in on a regular basis. And I do retreats for it, you know, to connect in with source, however that looks for different folks, Gaia, our living earth, myself, and actually what's emerging around me and like, where does my work fit in? So I love this really juicy conversation around right livelihoods. And one thing you were saying upstream and you were saying paradigms, I think the reason why I'm feeling called right now to have these conversations is that I'm seeing that we kind of mindlessly go through life like, oh, I got to go to work. Oh, what's your work? What's your career? It takes up so much of our life. But I think without actually having these kind of larger societal conversations around what is the purpose of work in my life, in our society, in the unfolding of generations future into the planet, I think it's a bankrupt. So I don't know if there's anything there that you want to touch on around like the paradigm shift aspects. Yeah, let's go into work and the paradigm shift around work. And I also want to share, I love uh, Danella Meadows, systems theorist who says, you know, the highest leverage point in changing a system is to transcend paradigms. So I just want to offer that nothing that I'm saying is the truth with a capital T. It's merely an investigation and exploration to try to be helpful for all of us on our right livelihood path. So feel free to investigate it, interrogate it, et cetera. But what I think one reframe, one way of reframing work, this idea of right livelihood, why that's supportive for me is one thing that it does is it widens the sense of what work is. I think that's important. And this also is related to feminist economics, that what if work was all of the ways we contribute to life? So this is our parenting and our care work, our art making, our volunteering, our tending to the earth and the ecosystems, our art making, activism, all of that. So seeing work is not just what we are paid for, but it's all the ways that we contribute to the living whole or to Gaia or the web of life. I think that's one way to reframe or rethink work. And then the second one is to say, okay, if there's right livelihood, does that mean there's wrong livelihood? Like, and what does that mean? And so my understanding is that there's three ways that we can look at this, three lenses. The first one is the content of our work, the content of our work, like what field you're in, what industry. And in this way, there absolutely can be wrong livelihood. Vanda Nashiva, she talks about how if you're in the pesticide industry or arms dealing or, you know, weapons manufacturing, oil drilling, like these are wrong livelihood in the way that the content of that work is extractive or exploitative to people in the planet. Okay, so that's the first one. So could you shift that? Could you shift the content of your work to be something more enlivening of people in the planet and more supportive of life, more thriving? The second lens, so that's the first lens is content. The second lens is the structure that your work is in, okay? And this is like, what's the business structure or the organizational structure? And so, yes, you know, you could be doing great mission-driven work, but it's in a hierarchical, non-transparent, really large pay gap industry. 
So this is like a capitalist enterprise, which we know, you know, all wage labor and capitalism is exploitative because of alienation, you know, thanks to Marx, we know all this, right? And feminist Marxism. And so, you know, we could change the structure to a worker cooperative, for example. This is the same in a nonprofit. Nonprofits can also be hierarchical. I didn't even know this till recently, but there's some unions in nonprofits. I didn't even think that was necessary, but then I realized, yes, of course, a nonprofit could also be exploitative of the workers if it's top-down, if it's not transparent, if it's hierarchical. So moving to a worker self-directed nonprofit, that would be a more supportive structure for right livelihood. So there's many ways of looking at that, but that's the structural piece. And there's other pieces to that structure, like are, are there adequate access to healthcare and education, childcare, right? That's also supportive of the structure of right livelihood. And then there's the, the last part is our relations within our work. So our interpersonal dynamics. Why do I say this? Because I have found that even in some cases where the structure is right on, let's say it's a collective or a worker cooperative, even when the content is right on, it's mission driven or it's, you know, it's got some purpose behind it, it can still be toxic. It can still have a toxic environment, a toxic way of being with one another. And this is like nonviolent communication, like recognizing our privileges in the way that white supremacy shows up in conversations or patriarchy shows up in conversations, mansplaining, for example. So it's like, how are we also unskillful? This is like right speech, right? How are we unkind to one another in our ways of being? So we can also have wrong livelihood in our attitude towards one another and our disrespect and our meanness. Right. So those are the three ways that I would say, like, move your livelihood through those three lenses to see if there's any opportunity for shifting. I will also say that I have to name this that to aspire for right livelihood, I think it's universal. I think even folks who are very low income or in the developing world, like wherever in the world, have aspiration for contribution and want to contribute and want to have purpose. The thing that is privileged is being able to make your entire living off of right livelihood. So I just want to name that it is very difficult to have right livelihood through and through. So that's why I call it an aspiration. And like we're moving towards that. There are some very real systemic changes that we need so that more folks can have right livelihood through and through. So I just want to say that so that we don't stigmatize or, you know, shame anyone who is working in a McDonald's, for example, or, you know, to be able to make a living due to structures of systemic oppression. So I just want to name that as well. Thank you so much. And this, this gets at the heart of what I really was excited about speaking with you about, because there's the personal parts and let's maybe, I'd love to hear maybe, you know, if you have any stories or anecdotes about what you've seen uplifts people, energizes people to activate them around actually asking the question around what might a right livelihood look like and what might mine look like. So that very personal inner transformation. And then after we do that, then I'd like to start shifting to some of the structural interventions that might support that. So yeah, if I were working with someone, I would do two different things. Like if they were saying, I don't feel like I have right livelihood. First, I would take from the book of liberation psychology, and I would just allow them to know, empower them to know that the, the barriers or the structural problems, the challenges they're, that they're having to get right livelihood are 
not their own fault, right? That there are very real structures that are making it more difficult just to ease their kind of sense of struggle a little bit. So just to name that for folks, that it's not their fault and to know a little bit more about the structures that are in place that make it more difficult. And then the second thing, one of my favorite quotes that I offer folks to be able to explore what could be their right livelihood, like calling or you know direction, is the Frederick Buchner quote. The quote is, God calls us to the place where the world's deepest hunger meets our deepest gladness. God calls us to the place where the world's deepest hunger meets our deepest gladness. And for folks listening, perhaps God is not a word you resonate with, so you can change that to source, or you can even change that to my right livelihood is the place. And so within that, then I'll ask the folks, where is the world's deepest hunger for you? You know, what breaks your heart that's happening in the world? What's bothering you? What's concerning you? Because I love the diversity in this. We all have different lived experiences, different generational experiences, like legacies in our, in our ancestry. So what is it that's breaking our heart shows up differently for each of us. And that diversity is beautiful because that means we all want to contribute in different ways. And then what's our deepest gladness is like, where do you come alive? Where do you step into flow? When do you thrive, right? Under what conditions or when do you feel most alive? It could be in the morning or in front of a group or while writing or while painting or in the kitchen, right? There's so, again, a lot of variety to that. And so if it's useful, then take those, the answers to those two questions, what breaks your heart and when do you come alive? And put that together and see, is there some livelihood calling that shows up in that space? Is there a project that wants to emerge or is there a, a job title that you want to start searching for? And I will also say that not all of us, when we put that together, will find a paid job. <laughs> so sometimes that point shows up in our activism or in our art or in something other than our paid work. And that's totally valuable too, because like I said, Part of right livelihood is expanding our conception of work to all of the ways we contribute to the living whole. I love that. And how important it is at this time to be holding space for folks to explore that. In my program, we use kind of the ikigai approach from Japan, that concept, which is what do you love? What does the world need? What are you good at? And what can you get paid for? And we also go deep into where do your quote unquote wounds, right? The challenges you face in life illuminate your path. And I want to come back to that. But I just think it's so key to be holding space right now at this time. I think a lot of people are really reeling from, I know I have young daughters. I literally had my young daughter, who's now an adult, say to me as a tween, what's the purpose, mom? It's all dying anyway. And that's, I think, what a lot of people in the subconscious level, like are just seeing the systems are just grinding and grinding and wanting so desperately to go into a different positive affecting, you know, where they can see that there's these beautiful amplifying loops that they can be part of. That's what I think so many folks want to do. And that I think that is part of Right Livelihood. And I just want to close off this exploration around the personal with a quote from your article. The name of the article, I love the name, is Cultivating Right Livelihood work as spiritual path and vehicle for economic systems change. And I love this quote, the most important practice on our right livelihood journey is how we respond in each moment and season of life. So thank you for that. 
So unless you have anything else that, you know, really arose for you around the personal, I would love to shift to some of the structural. Because again, it's easy to say, oh, each person just needs to like find their right livelihood path, right? And that's the solution. But as many of the people on the path can tell you, and I'm sure yourself, it's like, it's not quite that easy, right? Because we all need to still eat and have healthcare and retire perhaps someday, right? Well, I'll just share one, one thing that came up when, when you just shared uh, that I learned recently. So I'm teaching a course at the California Institute of Integral Studies on vocation, passion, action. And so I have to get a little bit academic as well as kind of more coaching helpful. And so I dove a little bit deeper into Ikigai, uh, the right. Japanese view that you mentioned. And first, I wanted to find a book that was written by a Japanese person who, whose native language is Japanese. So I did find one. In the book, the author actually speaks about that quadrant thing that you mentioned, the four mm -hmm. quadrants, the quadrant of that I'll get paid to do or like how I'll make money was actually not part of the Japanese view of Ikigai. Mm -hmm. It's more of a Western perception of it, which makes sense because if the Western view is how can we monetize everything, commodify everything that it would make sense that the, the bringing of Ikigai to a Western context would add that component as necessary for your Ikigai. So I just want to, I'll, I'll, the book is called Ikigai, The Japanese Art of a Meaningful Life, and it's by Yukari Mitsusashi. Just to share that that was really interesting to me, the relearning of Ikigai and how it's changed in its transition to the West. Keep going with that, because I love this thread where you're going with this. Well, I just read Sacred Economics, again, Charles Eisenstein, because I interviewed him this week for the podcast. And in it, well, he talks about right livelihood, but he also just talks about how the main thing that we could do right now that would be good for us to do is to invest in community. And he just talks about how right now in our world, especially in the Western world, the overdeveloped world, we don't need each other anymore. He talks about we used to, and I don't know who exactly the we is or when the used to is, but he says, you know, we used to cook meals for one another or take care of each other's kids more or just have a little bit more of mutual indebtedness. And he really encourages us to go back to that, to that gift economy. So I, I just think about the ways that, you know, like, let's say I, you know, I live with a dog and I'm going to be leaving next week and I'm, I need someone to walk and take care of him. I could pay for someone to do that because that would be the easiest and cleanest. That would be the exchange economy and the deed would be done, right? But what if I ask someone else to take care of the dog and then next week I bake them a cake and then two weeks later I give them a ride to the airport and, you know, it's this mutual indebtedness that creates community. So I think that icky guy piece of like what you do for money and then taking that out, just what does it do to liberate our potential for right livelihood that we may receive money for it? We may be able to commodify that work or we don't have to. So I think that's the liberating aspect of taking that fourth circle out of the icky guy equation for me. Well, and let me ask this question. So I came to the work that I'm doing specifically because I saw folks doing amazing work that we would consider in our definitions, right livelihood. And they could not stay in it or they were burning out because in reality, most of us are still embedded in the capitalist economy where you're exchanging dollars for rent or, you know, God forbid you have to go to the hospital. And I'm teaching permaculture courses and totally enamored with gift economy and 
you know, alternative economics like Time Bank. I actually tried to start a Time Bank in my local, you know, local area. And I actually got some great ideas from listening to your upstream podcast about universal basic income, about how I could better convey the importance of a time bank in my community. So thank you for that. But I think that that is this tension that we're dealing with, that capitalism values work that can be monetized. And as we know, caring work, work that reproduces human beings, not just in terms of birth, but what makes it possible for us to go back out and be healthy, thriving humans the next day. That is all the caring and love work. And it's not valued. And there's a problem with actually trying also to put a monetary value on it. So I see us and I see people doing this great work in the world and really stuck in this conundrum around how do I dedicate more of my life to it when I actually, you know, and I've also like simplified my life as simple as possible to get my costs down. So there's only so far you can go and then you need access. You see where I'm going with this. I'm just sensing that so many folks are stuck in this conundrum. And so that's where I'm like, what are the structural interventions that we can do? And I think you can speak to that. And, you know, one that I brought up is the alternative economics and you mentioned gift economy, but could we unpack that more? I don't want people to feel like it's a personal failing that they haven't figured out how to monetize something. And I do focus on entrepreneurship and helping folks figure out how to actually earn a living with their good skills. But again, like that's also kind of a crappy thing to always have to do. So let's explore that. Yes. And I hear you. And I think that's what I meant by bringing in liberation psychology to really take the pressure and the sense of like, it's their fault if they haven't figured this out yet. So I hear you on that. I will get to the structural. I do want to say a couple of things that I might say to someone who is in that place that you're talking about. One thing I love to do with clients is map their needs. Like what are all the needs that you have? And then what are the needs that you have to meet on the financialized market? And then what are the needs that you can meet more creatively or even symbiotically? So even something like childcare, you can start a childcare collective and, you know, one parent takes care of kids one day a week and times five, right? So there's no money exchange and everyone takes care of each other's kids and it creates that mutual indebtedness, for example, or joining a community growing, right? Place where you can grow your food and take home some of the food. So there's many ways that we can creatively meet our needs on the non-monetized market. So I just want to say that is kind of a fun activity. What are the needs you have to meet financially and what are the needs you can meet more creatively? The second thing is the way that the gift economy will work is only if you're not just giving, but you're asking for what you need. And this can be very, very difficult. So I just want to uplift like for folks who are in that place where they're giving, 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 and they're burning out, ask for what you need, right? Whether it is finances or support or volunteering or help or whatever, people love to give. So just to say for the gift economy to work, we also need to be able to ask for what we need. And then one thing I do personally in terms of this question is I look at my livelihood as a livelihood garden. Okay, because we know, and I know I'm talking to a fellow permaculturist, we know that diversity builds resilience. So what I do is I think about my livelihood as a garden, and there are some plants in my garden that produce fruit, that's a monetary fruit, and there's others that produce a different kind of fruit, like other needs met that are not monetary, and there's different trees or plants in my livelihood garden, and they all have symbiotic relationships, and they cross-pollinate a lot, and it's beautiful. 
So I just offer that to you, that if somebody is in a giving place and the work that they're doing is not making any money, is there a plant that you could plant in your livelihood garden that could give you the income fruit to be able to allow you then to do other work? And so this does lead to a structural change, one that I'm personally super excited by, which is under uh, talked about, is the model of the hybrid for-profit, non-profit business. This is like one of my very favorite things. And I have to name that the inspiration from this has come from the work of Jennifer Hinton and Donnie McClurkin, who are in the Post-Growth Institute. And they wrote a book called How on Earth, A Not-for-Profit World by 2050. So they imagine by 2050, we wake up no profit anywhere in the world. So this is a very post-growth perspective. Why is it post-growth? Because it's seeing growth of like GDP or profit or income growth as a means to an end instead of an end in itself. Kate Rayworth calls this being growth agnostic. So you don't actually care whether something grows or shrinks because you have a different goal and you do what serves that goal. So sometimes it's growth, sometimes it's not. So having a nonprofit, for-profit hybrid, you would have a for-profit enterprise or business that makes a profit, that does grow in its traditional sense, like a pizza place or a bar or a very classic one is the um, used clothing, you know, consignment store. That's a very typical model for a for-profit business that then is connected to a nonprofit. So 100% of the profit from that for-profit business is siphoned, harnessed, redirected to the nonprofit. And they can do their mission-driven work. Why is this helpful? Because the nonprofit might have, like you're saying, a way to have an entrepreneur element, but oftentimes it doesn't. Being a rape crisis counselor, there was nothing monetizable about that. We were 100% dependent on grant or donation funding. But what if the pizza place next door that's totally making tons of money, what if they had ethical supply chains, living wages for all their employees, local, fresh, organic ingredients, but at the end of the year, 100% of any profit went to the rape crisis center next door. That's what I'm talking about. And this does exist. Newman's Own is a U.S. company. They have 100% of their profits go to charity. We have a bar in San Francisco called the, the Interval, the very swanky bar. Again, living wages for the employees, excellent like local spirits. I'm just laughing because I'm like, would that be wrong livelihood to serve alcohol? Maybe in some Buddhist perspective, but 100% of the profit goes upstairs to the Environmental Conservation Foundation. I share that too because if there are folks who are feeling like I'm so mission driven and I just care about the cause that I want to uplift or support, and I don't have that entrepreneurial or marketing mindset, partner with someone who does. Like this view also doesn't say if you're entrepreneurial or you have a good marketing sense or you're a little competitive, this view is saying that's not a bad thing. It's what is that directed towards? And we want it directed in service towards life. So if you do your thing, you be your entrepreneur, you grow that business, but 100% of the profit goes to the mission-driven cause that the other person is running or that you're running as well, awesome. Everybody wins. So I just wanted to share that as one of my favorite models that I'm excited by right now. Fantastic. And that would require a particular legal structure, right? Because you couldn't do the typical thing where the shareholders have to get paid out their profits and you know that kind of corporation structure 
I mean, yeah. the, the YMCA is one, like Salvation Army, Goodwill. These are all examples of this. Like the YMCA, they have their for-profit gym, and then it 100% goes to the after-school activities for low-income youth. So actually, you wouldn't have shareholders, and you wouldn't have owners. In an ideal sense, you'd have stewards of the business. And ideally, that would be like a worker cooperative, stewards of the business, and then the nonprofit would be a worker self-directed nonprofit, just again, to bring in that structural piece. You also consult with folks around cooperatives, right? Would you like to share more about that and how you see that as an intervention? Yeah, I think that economist Richard Wolf, he says it well, where he says, you know, how can we call our country's democracies when as soon as we go into our workspaces, our capitalist business workspaces, they're inherently non-democratic, right? We don't have any say, we don't have control of our labor, et cetera. So a worker cooperative is a way to democratize the workplace, to share in the decision-making, although not all the decision-making, to have conversations about the profit distribution, about the pay gap. So it just helps people feel so much more involved and more responsible for it. And there's many different benefits to worker cooperatives, like they're better for the environment, they're better for people. So yeah, there's all sorts of benefits to worker cooperatives and they're a great model. And we have a two-part radio documentary series on worker cooperatives. One thing you also mentioned was um, living wages. And, you know, I think about if there's a worker cooperative and people can have the conversation about like, what should the CEO be paid, quote unquote, right? The CEO, I don't know what they'd be called, but, you know, versus the person who's actually on the floor doing the work. One thing I noticed as a dynamic in the permaculture design course certification course, often business model, is that the the rock stars or the sexy role was teaching, right? The people in front, that was typically, you know, a, a smaller group of folks, just because if you're going to pay people a decent wage for doing that important work, be a smaller group of people teaching, and then you'd have support staff. And so after doing that work for so long, I realized, wow, my colleagues and I were putting in huge amounts of hours to organizing to make sure, you know, people had sanitary, safe, awesome places to come and land off grid, for example. And all of that had to be volunteer hours, right? Or low paid. And we, what I found when I wrote the pattern language for women in permaculture is that predominantly women were doing a lot of the behind the scenes organizing work and it was not paid by any means on any par that the teachers are paid. So, you know, that I think is even a structural thing within our minds about who is doing what work. It's not always the work out front that is kind of the charismatic leader work that actually, you know, the, we call it the weaving work, right? The work that weaves the container within which this body of work can thrive is actually vital. So I want to uphold that. And I love time banks because, and I'd like to shift to that because I know in the podcast episodes I listened to, I loved hearing like the islands of alternative economics that can grow within the capitalist economy. And why I love time banks was because one hour spent is something goes into my bank. One hour that I spend reading a book to a bedridden elder or somebody in the time bank goes into my bank and can be spent for one hour of anything that is a service that I need back. And that could be, in theory, you know, skilled 
healthcare services or financial services or investing or whatever. And what I love about that is it valorizes, I'm using that word, and values on par the caring work that, again, makes the whole world go around. So that's my enthusiasm around time banking. My huge challenge is that I haven't found one that actually works that well, especially internationally, so I can be doing those exchanges. I would love to have much more of my livelihood actually based within the time banking. And I'm like, come on, people, let's get some app developers and some really smart economist people together. Maybe you know people who are figuring this out. So we could just like exchange, you know, locally, nationally, internationally, very easily time. So I don't know if you have anything to speak to that, but are there other kind of islands of other economic approaches or exchange approaches that you'd like to highlight? Yeah, let's focus on time banks for a minute and pay gaps because I just love that theme. Thank you so much for bringing it up and sharing your own enthusiasm. I remember when I lived in Sweden in my gap year between high school and college, I stayed with a family. The father was a actually an economics professor at the university, and he made the same amount of money per year as the janitor. And I remember this was shocking to me coming from the US. And now I'm just so appreciative of it because it's exactly what you're saying, where all the work to make the necessary functioning the well-functioning of a school is all the all of the jobs. And why is the janitor's job any less valuable or important than the professor's job? In fact, you know, some might argue that's actually even more critical and thankless work. So just uplifting that and that, yes, the main value of the worker cooperative is that pay is something that is discussed. It's transparent and discussed. And so when people have a conversation about pay, they usually decide on no greater of a pay gap than like one to 10. They're usually somewhere in there between one and 10 times greater. And some say, let's pay all of us equally. Sometimes people do say, let's have a little bit of a pay gap differential. Like if somebody has kids or has been there for a longer time or has more risk or more responsibility or has gone to school for some sort of training, they might say, hey, yeah, a pay gap and pay difference makes sense. So just to really uplift that, and yes, the beauty of the time bank is that it does equalize everyone's hour. So how powerful. I will say, again, another interesting thing that I learned about time banking was a time bank is helpful or useful in a community when there is uh, no social cohesion. So like when everyone is in their own lives or worlds and there's not really anyone talking or connecting. Then a time bank is helpful because it gets people to actually like share their gifts. Like I, I will teach an hour of Swedish and, and you will read a bedside story, right? And it kind of activates our gifts and allows us to get our needs met. But I have heard that a time bank is actually unhelpful when there is a cohesive or connected community because the time bank, what it does do is it does create the exchange paradigm sometimes in spaces where it's the gift economy. So like, you know, unfortunately, the example you said about like reading the book to the elderly person, should that be even in a time bank? You see what I'm saying? Like, so I think like, when I think about it, I think about like needs and offers boards as sometimes being more helpful. Like, hey, is there somebody who'd be willing to read to me or 
put, go for a walk with me or walk my dog or like that and then offered separate. So it's not an exchange. So just kind of sharing the difference between the exchange paradigm is I do something for you for what it does to me. And when I do the gift paradigm, I do something for you for you. So just to share that little bit of a difference that the time bank can have the unfortunate effect of uplifting the exchange paradigm in an economy if people are not already more embedded. So just want to want to share that. Don't know what you think of that. I totally love it. And, you know, I think I think what would be fantastic is to be having ongoing conversations that daylight all of the possibility pro and cons to all of these things so that we are all, you know, cause I think so much of, you know, it's like money and sex. We're so like unconscious so often in what our interactions look like. I actually also like studied the wheel of consent this past winter because I love how it illuminated the unhealthy aspect, the shadow aspect of taking. And I just saw how that shows up in our dominant economy, right? Not, not, not in all economies, but in our dominant economy. And I was like, oh my God, I'm having an ex- a bodied experience. Of course, it goes back all the way to rape prevention education, right? And I know it's resonating for you. So, you know, consent is all about what do really open conversations about wants and needs and desires and ability to fulfill that look like. So if, if we're able to have really robust delicious, mutually empowering conversations around that, I have the same metaphor for like, what if we could be like, you know, I think I can't do that as a gift right now because I'm feeling a lot of pressure in this, but I could do it as a time bank or I could do it. So we could actually like lay out the smorgasbord of possible economic opportunities that we have in front of us. And instead, you know, we like, we put up the paywall, right? Like that's what we do with our work so often. So yeah, I don't know. Does that does that resonate at all? Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, I'm thinking of I'm thinking of Robin Wild Kimmerer, and she wrote this beautiful essay. Would love to have that as, as well as in the resources. It's called The Service Berry, an Economy of Abundance. And I'm just reflecting on, you know, ecological economics, again, eco-spiritual tradition, just this difference between abundance and scarcity mindset and you know, what does it mean to recognize the abundance of the living earth and to practice gift giving and abundance and to also take care of ourselves? You know, self-care is a radical act. So like I said, being able to ask for what, what we need and also what you're saying, where like a no is a yes to something else. So if somebody asks you for something and you genuinely do not have the capacity, like it would harm you, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. then that's a no for now, right? And hopefully somebody else will meet that need. And so to give freely, not to give with a sense of overextension, right? And to resource ourselves through our self-care and then to resource ourselves through the structural changes. So you asked about structural changes. So just uplifting a progressive universal basic income, how supportive that would be, right? Of disconnecting wages and labor and really liberating work. And just to say my research into universal basic income, the greatest insight there has been people who are given a universal basic income do not just stop working. That's kind of a myth. 
they may pause for a moment because a lot of us are burnt out. <laughs> and particularly in the United States, we don't have a lot of vacation or, you know, time off. And so we may take a break. But in all the studies about universal basic income, people find ways to contribute that are meaningful to society. And, and I'm uplifting reproductive labor as well there too, like what we were talking about earlier. So universal basic income and, you know, other ways that, yeah, that we like support the commons and have our needs for education and healthcare met, right? All of this would just resource us more to be able to gift give to one another more and to be able to invest in community, as Charles Eisenstein said. Finally, I just want to yeah, share it because you asked a beautiful question around the islands of alternatives. So this is the frame that it comes from two feminist authors that write under one pen name. They're called Gibson Graham. They write under the pen name Gibson Graham. And they talk about economies as if we perform diverse economies, meaning when we're walking in the world, when we're in the world, we actually perform different economies. So like if I go to the library, I'm performing the sharing economy or the commoning economy. If I give a ride to a neighbor, I'm performing the sharing economy. If I take care of my elderly parent, that's the care economy or the feminist economy. If I walk into a worker cooperative, that's the cooperative economy. So there's actually many ways we perform diverse economies. And when we talk about capitalism as this like ever pervasive thing that's just everywhere, we actually give it more power. This is their view. We give it too much power. And so this idea of performing diverse economies is like uplifting islands of alternatives. So living in the new economy kind of every day, wherever we can. Now, the challenge with that is we, and particularly as white folks or people with privilege, we cannot just see ourselves as extracting from the capitalist economies and going and living in those islands of alternatives while leaving the rest essentially to drown. So we have to figure out how do we widen those alternative economic spaces to make them inclusive, right? Mm -hmm. And it's not just like, let's say in California, we have a clothing brand where everything's made organic, sustainable, and fair trade. I don't mean lowering the price of that so that everyone can afford it. I mean, raising the minimum wage so that everyone can afford that. And so that that artist or artisan or person, craftsperson can also make a living wage. So just, just to share that. And then of course, redistribution of wealth and all those other pieces that are necessary too. But just want to share that view on kind of this islands of alternatives. How do we continue to grow them, to live on them, but make them more accessible to all? And I'm sure we could talk about this for another week. I mean, when we were putting together kind of like our seed ideas for this, that, you know, the biggest challenge we're going to have is not talking forever. We have one topic that we haven't talked about that I know is dear to both of our hearts, and that is also very pertinent to the times that we're in, very challenging times. And our grief for the world can feel really big. I mean, when, I, when the IPCC report, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate change, I like to say actually climate disruption, because we are changed, sounds good in the frozen Northeast and winter. When that came out, you know, I've known since probably the early 90s, when I started following this stuff that we were in trouble, and some folks have known longer, but I knew, I knew it was coming. And I still had to sit down and sob and sob and sob, and just let my body work with that grief. Um, will you share your experience. I met Joanna Macy because she came and visited when I lived up at Eco Village at Ithaca, and I've wanted to do the work that reconnects, you know, work with her. I've invited your colleague and mine, Sylvia de Blasio, into the network, into the Pathfinders course 
to help folks understand what the great turning is and what the work that reconnects is about. But I think you and I both very much believe that our grief for the world, as Joanna says, points to our love for the world and can very much illuminate our livelihood paths. Is there anything about that you'd like to share? One of my favorite elements of my livelihood garden is to leave work that reconnects retreats. And I actually have three this fall, including two that have singing and permaculture. But what I'll say is that the work that reconnects is open source. So if folks listening are interested, you can go to the work that reconnects facilitators network and see if there's any retreats near you. And you can also get her books. So she has Active Hope, which is a more everyday reading type of book that's also really beautiful read with a group as like a reading group. And then the Coming Back to Life second edition is the facilitator manual. So again, it's open source. So Joanna really says, ideally you attend a work that reconnects before you start to lead it. But there are invitations for folks who are working with children, communities of color, even in businesses. Like she offers ways to bring the work that reconnects into those spaces. So I'll just say that. And it's not the only modality of this, but one of the key elements is, as you're saying, is grief work. And in it, it's this frame of honoring our pain for the world and just doing that collectively. So yes, of course, folks listening could do this by themselves, right? Really open their hearts to the pain in the world and really allow themselves to feel it. And she gives this practice inspired by a Buddhist meditation called Tong Len. And I do this while I'm listening to the news where you imagine that you're breathing in the suffering of the world as black smoke, you're cycling it through your heart, and then you're breathing out love and kindness and compassion. And so I do this again, when I'm listening to the news each day, and it's so that we don't hold on to the pain of the world in our shoulders or our heads or our guts or wherever you hold stress. So you keep it moving. So that's one element, but also, so that's kind of an individual practice. But also, as I said, the collective honoring of our pain is so powerful. So I just really encourage folks to find spaces where you can talk about your grief for the world, your grief, your anger, your care, your despair, because these are very difficult times. And so to hold each other in that, to know that you are not alone and to be with one another, to really, I hear you, I see you, one another in your pain is really powerful and empowering. So I just, I wish that for everyone listening that you may find those spaces, whether it's work that reconnects or otherwise, or a reading group or active hope book. But um, I definitely agree that bringing our grief in a more public frame to know that we're not alone is, is very empowering and also necessary for these times. And towards wrapping up, is there anything that you've seen for yourself in your grief that has directed you on your path or that you've seen for others? I'll go back to something you shared earlier. You shared something about the article around like, I'm interpreting it as like turning towards life in each and every moment. Mm -hmm. So it's like the great turning is another phrase from the work that reconnects. And my interpretation of it is to turn towards life in every single moment of every day, in every single interaction. So it's the big, big turning of like the system or the global transition, but it's also the little turnings in each moment. And I met a woman once who told me her life motto was better than found. So to leave everyone better than found. So when I sense into my grief and I get overwhelmed by the largeness of the burning of the Amazon rainforest, or even more locally, the forests around me in California, or whether it's police brutality, I mean, whatever it is, refugee crises all around the world, right? 
when I sense into those and I allow myself to breathe them through, as I mentioned, then how do I take that passion for justice and just turn that to each and every moment with each being I'm with, with each tree, each plant, like picking up a piece of trash, leaving someone better than found who I meet on the bus stop or in a restaurant. I think that's a way that I move my grief into action on behalf of the earth and in service to life. What else is emerging that you're excited about in your work that you'd like to share with us? With the Upstream podcast, that is my way, similar to this Regenpreneur's conversation series, how I have conversations with folks to continue learning and then to share out that learning. So if you'd like to join me on that exploration, that's totally free and available on any platforms. But I I said, I just interviewed Charles Eisenstein, so that'll come out soon. I also interviewed Tyson Young-Caporta, who wrote Sand Talk, How Indigenous Thinking Can Save the World. That's coming out. We're currently working on a documentary on the Occupy movement, the legacy of the Occupy movement after 10 years. And we just released an interview on policing. So going Mm -hmm. beyond policing and the connection between capitalism and, and the police state. So if someone's interested in that. But yeah, then just in general, I'm involved in many different things. I guess the one other one I'll share is because it's a volunteer project. So it's one of the livelihood pieces that does not have a monetary fruit, the California Donut Economics Coalition. So I think I'll share this as a, a closing invitation for folks in case they don't know. So Kate Rayworth, who I mentioned a couple times, she has uh, amazing book called Donut Economics, Seven Ways to Think Like a 21st Century Economist. And if you remember, she's where I got that renegade economist frame from. And so that's a really great book to learn more about alternative economic thinking and also to hear about one view of a changing the goal of an economic system to the view of the donut, which related to our other conversations is about the meeting of human needs within the planetary boundaries. I'm inspired by that work and part of a group of uh, California residents working to create a donut selfie for California. And yeah, I guess I would encourage other folks too, if you want to get involved to join the Donut Economics Action Lab and create your own groups and start seeing how could you change the goal of your economies wherever you are to be in the donut. Because I think that's one macro level idea that's easy to get behind because it's a visual image of a donut where the inside is the meaning of human needs, the outside is the planetary boundaries, and the donut part is the safe and just space for humanity. But I I think that that's an idea that folks are excited by, and particularly myself, I find a particular inspiration. So that's another thing I'm working on right now. And that was Della Z. Duncan. Della's work, including the Upstream podcast, her retreats, and livelihood coaching, the last of which is offered on a donation basis, can be found at DellaZDuncan.com. You can find our host for this episode, Karn Olson, at Regenerpreneurs.com. Though I'll be sharing more conversations from the series with you in the future, until the next of those is out, if you'd like to see what's coming up for Karn and her guests, including how you can join a live session, visit Regenerpreneurs.com slash conversation hyphen series. You'll find links to all of that, as well as the resources mentioned in related interviews such as my conversation with Charles Eisenstein, in the show notes. I'm thankful to Karen for collaborating with me to share these conversations in her series with you. Her work and life's passion is on creating a right livelihood and helping others do the same. Whereas I'm interested in sharing the breadth of permaculture and connecting you with the resources you need to live a deep, 
meaningful life, steeped in permaculture, wherever you find yourself. These connections in our own particular focus allow me to bring you more than I can on my own. If there's anyone you know who you'd like me to have guest host an interview for the podcast, get in touch. Email show at the permaculturepodcast.com. Call or text 717-827-6266. Or you can drop me a note on WhatsApp, plus one, 717-827-6266. You can also use those to share any of your thoughts or questions with me on anything podcast or permaculture related at any time. So feel free to reach out. Until the next time, spend each day engaging in the systems and work that delight you while taking care of Earth, yourself, and each other.